I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, for many of you, you've just started developing a symptom on an intermittent basis that might be affecting your knee, your hip, or your hand. It's come on out of the blue. You don't really know why. And it's a little bit unclear to you as to what's happening. You know, that's crumbled on now for a few years. It comes and goes. But when it's there, it can be disabling. But between times, you're completely well. And you think to yourself, what is this? Could it be early osteoarthritis? At this point in time, what early osteoarthritis is, is a little bit unclear. But it's an important research area for a number of different reasons. We obviously need to know the reasons why people develop disease and the trajectory of their illness. But I think particularly when we're thinking about the application of that knowledge to including people in clinical trials for disease-modifying therapies, so therapies that might modify the course of disease, it's critical that we have a window there where people's disease is not so severe that they may be less likely to respond um, that we could intervene in. So that's one of the rationales for why we might want to develop some criteria around who it is that has early osteoarthritis and how we define that. So that's the focus of today's topic. And we're privileged to be joined by Jean Liu. Now, Jean's an assistant professor of medicine in the section of rheumatology at Boston University. And her clinical research focuses both on knee osteoarthritis and axial spondyloarthropathy. Hello, Jean. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I'm sure we'll learn a lot from each other. And hopefully the listeners will gain a lot from the conversation as well. But before we get into the main content, just wondering if you can tell the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like. Sure. So I am a 
rheumatologist. So I'm a physician who has specialized training in rheumatology, and I see patients in clinic um, two half days a week. But most of my time is spent doing research in osteoarthritis, as well as other types of arthritis, such as spondyloarthritis, which is one that typically affects the spine and causes back pain. And I am based at Boston University, so in Boston, Massachusetts, although I am originally from Texas and did my medical training in various places, including Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, um, and also um, have a master's in epidemiology, which is related to the type of research that I do. Wonderful. Sounds like you got to tour the whole country on the way through your rheumatology training. Is that right? Yeah, just not not the the flyover middle bits, but um, pretty much the the rest of it. And uh, you asked about my typical day. So when I'm not um, in clinic seeing patients, I have my day um, carefully planned out because I'm a very meticulous, very organized, um, detail oriented person. But it's a combination of meetings um, to advance research or meetings related to um, other kinds of um, committee or service work. Um, I might be um, looking at results or generating results from a research study. I might be writing about it, um, might be writing um, grants, which is what we do um, to get funding to do our research. Now, a lot of our guests, people like yourself who are <clears throat> clinician researchers, so people who see patients as well as uh, do research. Do you like that balance? And and if so, why? Yeah, so it's it's something that I real, have realized more and more is the right balance for me. So I'm a very introverted person. And I think this kind of balance where I turn myself on and I see patients for about five hours, and I'm really on really on and really getting to know them and present in the room with them. And then I spend a lot of time kind of quietly in my office, just thinking very hard. And then I have meetings that are, are like this, which are sort of moderate for me in, in terms of like how on and extroverted I have to try to be. Um, I think it's just the right combination because when I see patients in clinic and I'm counseling them and um, trying to answer their questions as best as I can with the knowledge of what research is out there, it helps me think about all the things that we still don't know. And then of the things that we still don't know, a lot of them cannot be answered right away. But there are some questions that patients ask me where we could try to answer them using what is available now in terms of what's available for research. So it's this interplay of the patient asks me a question, it triggers an idea that we could research. And then also what I bring back from our research and what I bring back from our national international research meetings, I can bring it right back to the patient. And actually today I told somebody, well, don't know the answer to that specifically, but I'm going to um, international meeting in about a month and a half, actually six weeks. And what I learned there about your condition and what's new, I promise to bring this back to you and and talk to you about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. So Obviously, thanks for sharing that insight. And, you know, I think one of the beauties and benefits, as you say, is the the opportunity to um, both share cutting edge with people who have arthritic diseases, but also for the evidence vacuum, if you want to call it that, uh, to provide an opportunity to, to prompt further research. Now, Jean, when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? 
So I, I do two things that everyone famously knows I do. So, I mean, not, not the social media Twitter thing. That is also a thing that I'm famous for doing. But everyone knows I read a lot and, and I bake a lot. So I didn't read for a really long time, like a decade when I was in medical training and the tail end of undergrad. Um, I just didn't have time. But when I was a kid, I would read so much. I would go every weekend to the library and just get like a dozen books and finish them all, like read the most books, like by far of any person I ever knew. And then since I started my faculty position here um, at BU, I started reading again. And I'm on my like 82nd book of this year. I just finished the Covenant of Water, which was really good. 700 pages. It took me eight days while I was busy writing a grant. So I could have read it even quicker than that. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I, I like baking a lot and just simple things like pound cakes and cupcakes and um, just things like that. And I always bring it into work. And now people are protesting because it's everyone is is apparently gaining too much weight and having their blood sugars go up too much. So I need to back off. That sounds like a terrible problem to have. But um, I'm sure they can do it all in moderation. Is there a particular type of literature you like to read? I really like historical fiction, but I've also found some really good biographical memoir things that I like. I, there's some nonfiction topical things that I, I like. Um, like I used to love Oliver Sacks, like the man who mistook his wife for a hat, um, that kind of thing before I went into medical school. So those like very specific topics um, that are like written as a series of essays I like. And then historical fiction wise, I mean, a lot of it is just what, what's on the bestseller list. So like if Oprah or Reese Witherspoon is recommending it, I probably read it. Yeah, fantastic. Have you read any of Con Igledon's work? I haven't. No. He's got a fantastic insight into, I guess, the uh, Genghis Khan and his family, as well as the the Roman Empire, as well as uh, some other takes on history. Anyway. Ah, uh, okay. I'm, I'm well, done. I like Mary Beard, so I read SPQR recently. I like Roman history. Yeah. I think about Roman history a lot for those out there, those people out there who are familiar with the with the meme about thinking about Roman history. Wonderful. Now, Jean, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? So I had to think about this question because I was like, what are five words that are not the same words? Um, ambitious, stubborn, organized, unique, and then persistent. But then I was like, that's the same as stubborn, but we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, wonderful insights that I'm sure fantastic qualities when it comes to applying itself to the work that you do. Now, Jean, this has obviously been prompted by an article that's just been accepted into osteoarthritis and cartilage, which will be highlighted in an upcoming issue about early stage osteoarthritis. But I'm just wondering, in the first instance, just setting the scene a little bit, what is early stage osteoarthritis? That's part of what we're trying to define very precisely. So in the course of having osteoarthritis, that we think that there is this window of opportunity where interventions, treatments um, work much better to slow or prevent um, progression of the, the knee becoming more painful, the joint actually looking worse on x-ray, all of those things. And we think in this window of opportunity, if we can find people early enough and identify them, that we can potentially find treatments that work better than the current treatment 
products that we have or have been testing. So that's still a very vague idea of what is early stage NEOA. And the reason it's so vague is because there is no diagnostic list of criteria to define exactly what that is or when it is or how you find it if you're um, a doctor, like what tests you do. And in all the instances where we've gathered a room full of OA experts to talk about it, it's just been over almost two hours of discussion about all the things that you could consider. And it's not something that we can say at the end. Now we have a way to say this is what early stage NEOA is. So it's it's something early enough that we can define and something that we hope we can target to treat to um, improve symptoms and, and improve quality of life in people who would otherwise live with NEOA. Yeah, valuable insight and a great place to start. But I guess just touching upon something that you said there about bringing together a room full of experts and sounds like at the end they had somewhat divergent perspectives on how best to define early osteoarthritis. Have you done the same for people who have osteoarthritis and did you find the same divergence? We did not have that particular conversation at that time to say, like, how would we say this is someone who has established um, NEOA? We we did spend quite a lot of time trying to say, what is, what what do we think of as differentiating early stage NEOA from more established or later stage NEOA? But that is, as, that is a different research project that we are trying to do um, in the OA research space to say, like, okay, here's... Here's a definition for later stage away. Yeah. Um, and you started touching upon this just in terms of the rationale for why you want to do this whole early osteoarthritis classification criteria in the first place. Um, and, you know, you you mentioned a little bit here about the fact that, you know, many of our therapies, particularly when we're thinking about modifying the course of disease, may not work as well in later stage disease. Is that the primary rationale? Are there any other reasons why you might want to do this? The getting people um, earlier in the course of OA into clinical trials and finding that subset of people so that we can test treatments is one of really the, the driving factors for this whole initiative where we're trying to create classification criteria, which are basically a list of items to define someone as having early stage NEOA. Um, the driving force is really for clinical trials, but we can also use this definition in research studies to to say, okay, we're, ident we're identifying this group of people as having early stage NEOA, and we can study them and, and see like what's the natural history or their subsets or their clusters of people who have this same kind of condition and what do they look like as they progress? What are different trajectories as things get worse? Are there some who have a more accelerated um, progression to having like more severe or end stage or later stage OA, whatever um, terms you might want to use? So it's not just um, the trials. It's also for a research perspective. This is less less going to be applicable in a directly in like a clinic, like a primary care clinic. We're not intending um, to make a checkbox of criteria for someone in primary care 
to be diagnosed with early stage NEOA. That's not our our primary goal. It's it's mainly for research so that we can better understand what this is and how we can apply treatments so that maybe these people with early stage NEOA will not have to have later stage, more severe NEOA. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great description. So obviously there's a research context as well as a clinical trial context. And for those of you who want to dig into that a little bit further and learn a little bit more about what we call disease modification, which for many of us, sort of myself included, is the holy grail of what we'd like to do in our research careers, which is modifying the course, both of the disease, the structure, as well as the symptoms. Um, at present, we don't have any approved therapies for that. And part of the reason for that maybe is that we've been focused on people who have later stage disease rather than early stage disease. So Jean, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the study you've just completed, the scoping review, and tell us, I guess, what the background for what prompted this is through the Osteoarthritis Research Society. The bigger picture is that this is the um, ORSI initiative to create the classification criteria to define early stage NEOA, or rather it's actually early stage symptomatic NEOA, but I'm abbreviating it because that's a lot of words. And this is a huge thing involving researchers from around the world. And it's many phases, many years with this ultimate goal of at the very end, we're going to have this list of items. And this is going to be the list of items that define um, early stage NEOA that can be used in clinical trials and in research. But to back all the way up, before we can decide what those items are or have experts weigh in on what the items are, we wanted to say, well, here we are at the very beginning. What is early stage NEOA? How have people defined it in papers that have been published in studies that have already been published? So we just want to see like, what does it what does this even mean to people right now? This was in, this was like 2022. So in 2022, what does it mean right now? So we um, did a scoping review, which is where you um, take all the published literature as well as the unpublished literature. So conference abstracts and things like that. And we just did a search and then um, screened through all of these papers and abstracts and narrowed it down from many thousands to 211 that seem to have a definition somewhere of early stage NEOA. And then we took those 211 and extracted out all of these data points to then sort of figure out like what are the domains and items within those domains of each early stage NEOA definition that's in each of these 200 and some papers. So when I say domains, it's like, imaging or symptoms or demographics like what are all the big parts in the little parts of the way that the paper defined early stage neoa and you know this is this is probably a little bit semantics but just to give people a sense of the the uh the bandwidth that you had to apply how i mean roughly how many papers did you screen um and how much time did that take and how many people were involved in this effort that 
That is a great question. It took a lot of time and there were four early stage investigators. So people like me, we came from different parts of the world and we did the bulk of the, the work of the screening and the extracting of data from these papers. So we had a research librarian, which is someone trained to run the search to pull over 6,000 articles that fit the bill for us. We said we wanted to look at early stage NEOA and we had a conversation with him and he pulled over 6,000 articles, which then had to be fed into this online platform. And then we basically clicked through and said, yes, no, include or not include for all of these 6,000 abstracts. And then we did another round and then we narrowed it down to the 211 and then we had to read the whole paper and pull out all of these um, items that were important um, to our study. So at the very beginning for me, because I read very quickly, um, again, I've read 82 books this year. It was really quick, like a few seconds to decide if um, a paper fit or not. But towards the end where you had to be very meticulous and very organized, which are adjectives I use for myself, we spent a lot more time double and triple checking our own work as well as our colleagues' work and countless hours from the time that we wanted to do this until the time it was published. It was over a year. And when you're publishing a paper, you submit it to a journal and then you, it goes out to people who are experts in the field who review it and give you back comments and critiques. And we did this over two rounds and when you respond to the critiques, you have to write a nice letter saying, this is a critique and this is how we responded. And these letters would be 20 something pages long. So it was a, it was a really time intensive process. We learned a lot and we really appreciate um, our colleagues being very meticulous along with us and making sure that we were just, everything we did was just like, just as good as we could do it. Thanks for sharing that. It's, it sounds like um, an enormous piece of work that it's obviously taken a long period of time, but I think in, inevitably will be incredibly valuable. So based upon what you found, how was in the literature, early osteoarthritis, how's it been defined thus far? So the majority of the studies just defined it based on x-ray findings. And x-rays are not the best for detecting really early changes. And then also looking at the x-ray alone is not enough to tell you um, if someone is experiencing the symptoms and illness of having NEOA. So there are also studies that looked at both imaging like x-ray as well as symptoms, symptoms being like knee pain or stiffness. But the most common was they just use a criterion of x-rays or some type of imaging. So that was one piece. And the other piece was that most of these definitions of early stage NEOA were trying to bring in people of earlier stages of NEOA, but they were not um, kicking out or excluding people who had later or more established NEOA. So it was just trying to be a broader definition rather than one in which you isolate early stage NEOA. And our whole initiative is trying to isolate people of early stage NEOA because we want to study them totally separately. So you started touching upon this, but I guess what takeaways or learnings from the scoping review will you then subsequently apply to the future work? 
that you're working on for the classification criteria? That we had a lot of work to do because there was not really a, a solid, good definition of early stage in EOA based on the, what's been published. So we wanted to use the items that were pulled out of these studies um, to then feed back to the um, experts. So like clinic clinicians and researchers involved in OA care or OA research, we wanted to use these items to ask them if they felt these these items were good for basically identifying someone with early stage EOA, because that's that's the next part of this whole endeavor is that we figure out what are the what are the very specific items that we want to consider so that we can take those and move them forward to figure out are we going to be able to include them in the final criteria or not? And this involves a lot of a lot of work with our experts um, and then some work using analyses of data that we have and data that we have not collected yet, actually. So there's just a lot more phases that are coming. Now, Jean, I'm not going to hold you to this and you'll never be quizzed about this again. But if if you could look forward using your crystal ball, and this might be science fiction or you know future fantasy what items do you think might be part of an early osteoarthritis definition there's going to be some characteristic of pain that's definitely going to be in there and i think we're going to have some ex- well we're going to have to have some exclusion criteria and i think imaging particularly x-ray is going to be part of that exclusion criteria but um as far as what other things, I don't know that I can comment further. Yeah. Um, and when I, and when you say hard. no, no, that's fine. And when you say pain or symptoms, do you do you envisage this will be around the severity of the pain, its frequency, all of the above? Exactly. So you can't. I we're not going to be able to just say any knee pain, we're going to have to like really drill down on frequency, severity, intensity, the characteristics of pain. So I, I think I think the pain will be uh, more spelled out. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we're not so narrow and very, very like trying to be very, very detailed in the criteria because this is like people do not experience things quite the same and we want to capture the right group of people and not narrow it so much that there is no way you could enroll people into a trial because you have so many stringent criteria. Wonderful. Now, Jean, is there anything else that you wanted to say about that topic before I move on to um, some closing questions? Um, Not at this time. I'm just excited that we are almost done with like our next like little bit and we're going to do some data analysis soon which um which will be fun wonderful now again if you had a magic wand in your hand and you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do I, I would get us more funding i would make i would make the government give us more funding that's like the, right. the thing the one thing to do again, we don't the, have mag- the magic wand allows you to have limitless funding anything anything okay so i already have um limitless i i i mean 
I would in I would get uh, more person power for our research group. We have lots of questions that we're always trying to answer, but we're 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 just strapped because we don't have funding. So I think for like all the like research groups out there, we would ensure that they have like the supplies they need. If they're a clinical research group like us, I would ensure that they have access to all the databases they need and that they would have access to all the um, analysts that they need to like run all the studies, um, run all the analyses for all the studies that we are envisioning. So everything would just be like running at maximum speed because we all have so many questions, but we're limited resources to try to answer them. So if we had all the money, I would just make sure that all the researchers like could yeah. like answer their questions as quickly as possible. Wonderful. Now, how do you continue to learn to stay on top of what you do? Oh, the answer is I'm online all the time. I'm chronically online. Um, I'm using Twitter, which I'm going to continue calling Twitter um, because it's it's just the quickest way to get bite-sized um, information about this new study is out. And it is on you to click on it and actually read the study and not just read the bite-sized thing. But I think it's, it's just for me a faster way than if I were to read a table of contents or to actually get a journal that I would just put in my bookcase and probably neglect for a while. So it's online and having this community of people who want to share their research or share like something of interest to them. That's the, that's the way I learned. Yeah. Have you noticed a decrease in the, the volume of activity on X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it? <laughs> not calling it x um <laughs> yes because a lot of people have a lot of people have left they've gotten frustrated with just the way it is and they've migrated to other platforms but no one has settled on like this is the replacement platform so right now i'm straddling too but the other platform it's um there's not really any like rheumatology research on it so it's just chatter at this time but in a sense it was okay that some of the volume decreased because it there was way too much volume um, on my feed, at least, um, to really keep up with. So it's, yeah. it's still manageable at this time. Yeah. Jean, what's the primary motivation for you? Why do you do what you do? Um, well, I mean, I, everyone, when they go into medical school says they want to help people. Um, so that's still my answer. But why do I do what I do with research? The answer is because this is something I am good at and it's something that can make an impact on others to their benefit. So that's why I do it because I I know I am going to make a difference in the world. Yeah, well, maintain that motivation. It's critically important. So keep up the great work. And just in closing, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people that have arthritis? I think trying different things and always asking your doctors, is there something new? And just be willing to try different things, sometimes multiple things at once is probably the best strategy. Of course, people say keep active, exercise. Um, that's part of that, but just trying to see if there's something new coming down the pipeline and just always ask. I think that's probably the the best advice I have. Yeah, that's a great, great advice because, you know, I think, the more information people can digest and hopefully empower themselves with different proactive interventions to help to control their disease, the better. Jean, thank you so much for spending some time with us. The insights that you've had, both from your career, but also from the early osteoarthritis initiative, it's incredibly valuable. So thank you so much.
Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast with Jean. I'm hoping you found that both helpful and informative. And it's really helping to hopefully promote an area of content that's incredibly important to our field, as well as to therapeutic development, particularly for disease-modifying therapies. We need to have some means of classifying those people that have early-stage osteoarthritis, both from the perspective of understanding the illness, the trajectory of the illness, but also hopefully for recruitment into clinical trials. Watch this space. It's obviously an active area that a number of people in our field are working on. We'll provide a link to Gene's publication in the show notes for today and hopefully feature some of the work in future podcasts. Again, thank you so much for the support of Joint Action. Really appreciate the opportunity to have a little bit of time to spare with you and share some of these insights with you. Thank you so much for your continued support. And between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.